0: I'm gonna be a faster learner if I'm not so afraid of being wrong. I'm actually gonna learn more quickly because I'm gonna be less likely to be swatting away information and kind of like trying to fend it off in defense of my own self-narrative.
1: Welcome to Airplane Mode, a GQ podcast about living smarter in this complicated modern world we all find ourselves in. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. Here's the thing about me, I am terrible at being wrong. Why? Because... Being wrong sucks, which is exactly why I wanted to have on today's guest, Annie Duke. She's a former professional poker player and a business consultant and an author, and she lives her life in what is a really interesting way. Basically, she has taken what she learned playing at the poker table, which is that you can't ever totally be 100% on anything, and apply it to life. You know, she's figured out that you bet on what career you think you might like or where you might like to live or who you might want to marry, but we're really uncomfortable being uncertain when we make those choices whereas Annie in poker understood that you had to be okay with that level of uncertainty so this is what Annie talks about in her book thinking in bets which has just been released in paperback so you guys should go get that and it's what she talks about here just gives some really great advice on how you can live with that level of uncertainty Annie Duke, thank you so much for coming in and being on the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I'm glad you're here because you write and speak so compellingly about uncertainty and sort of uncertainty as a virtue in a way. Oh, um, thank you. Do you think that's a fair characterization?
0: I hope so. You co-
1: sort of cock your head. <laughs> they can't see you on the podcast. So you co- sort of yeah. cocked your head quizzically like maybe that wasn't. No, a, I,
0: I just like the way that you said that. I, I haven't had anybody put it as I think about uncertainty is a virtue. I like the way you phrase that. That's what what the headcock was. Like, oh, that's an interesting way to put it. I like that.
1: (laughs) Okay, so it was a positive headcock. Yes, it was. Noted. But it feels like, to me, increasingly in society, and we can talk about whether or not it is increasingly, but it feels like we prize certainty in a way. So I guess... The first thing I would ask you is why, in your understanding, is being uncertain or being comfortable with some level of uncertainty something constructive or something useful or something we should work on?
0: I mean, I'm going to give you a really simple answer and then, you know, we can elaborate on it. The simple answer is because it's true. I mean, in the sense of if we want to think about what an accurate representation of our knowledge of the world is, because this is what we're doing, like the world exists outside of ourselves and we're creating some sort of model of that in our heads. The only accurate model is one that holds a lot of uncertainty in it um, because there's so much stuff we don't know. You know, I'll say to people, can you think of some things that you really believe very strongly with, like, great certainty when you were 20 years old that you no longer believe now? And they'd laugh. <laughs> and they're like, really everything. <laughs> um, and I say, why do you think your knowledge is any different today? You know, we can see this both – not just in the history of an individual human in terms of, you know, how our beliefs evolved. I mean, for me, there's stuff I believe last year or last week that I've already sort of calibrated or or changed. Not not necessarily always like a full-on reversal, but certainly like small changes or I believe it a little bit less or Mm -hmm. I believe it a little bit more or I've added some nuance to it or something like that. So there's kind of this evolution within me as an individual. You know, we know there are things that we – as humanity kind of like believed 10 years ago that we don't believe anymore, 20 years ago that we don't believe anymore. And this is just kind of the state of the human condition because we don't know what the world is in terms of like an objective reality. We're confident that it exists, but we're always sort of trying to move forward. But there's always going to be uncertainty in the relationship between our mind and the objective world.
1: You have this great quote from your book, Thinking in Bets, where you say, information that disagrees with us is an assault on our Mm self-narrative. So let's unpack that first. Can you sort of tell me more specifically what you mean by that?
0: Sure. So what we know is that, and this is, you know, obviously like Kahneman and Tversky's amazing work, Kahneman run a Nobel Prize for this, as part of prospect theory is how do we process wins versus losses? And we know that losses feel about two, two and a half times as bad to us as wins do. Hmm. So then we can kind of work from that You know, so like if you go to play blackjack and you lose $200, that will feel about as bad to you as as winning $400 feels good to you. Okay, so you've got to win a lot more to get sort of the same intensity of feeling as losing gets you. So now we can sort of come from there and say, well, what is a loss? And a loss isn't just like, I lost money at the blackjack table. There's other things that we can lose. And it turns out that you can kind of think about when, when you believe something really strongly and it turns out not to be true, that's like a loss, right? So like a piece of your belief system is, mm-hmm. is lost. So this feeling of I'm wrong, that's sort of how you process it, right? Like I'm wrong. And that feels like a loss. Another example would be like, let's say that something happens in your life and you kind of think about it and you're trying to figure out, was that a result of like, did I make a decision that made that very likely to happen? Or was that because I got unlucky? If you process that as I made a decision that made this bad thing happen, then that feels like a mistake, which means you were wrong, which feels like a loss. So we can kind of think about like what we're trying to do as human beings is is have this positive self-narrative. We all want to feel good about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in the short run, taking that ding, taking that loss feels really, really bad to us. Admitting that we made a mistake or that we were wrong about something feels really, really bad to us. And so we do a whole bunch of kind of like contortions, mental <laughs> contortions, in order to avoid having to process something in a way that puts a ding in, our, in this particular self narrative. We do a lot of kind of avoiding of it. And what's kind of interesting about that, that I, I really think about a lot is that you're helping your narrative along in the moment but you're not helping your narrative along in the long run. So I think everybody understands like in the long run for your kind of long-term self-narrative being wrong, admitting mistakes, saying i'm uncertain, that those are all really good for your long-term self-narrative, but the problem is it's in competition with your short-term self-narrative. And in the moment it's like you you sort of like oh man, there was a down tick, right? Like Ugh. and you avoid that and what ends up happening is by avoiding that you're actually sacrificing sort of the probability of having, like, you know, a good self-narrative mm-hmm. in the long run huh. to get those little, those fixes in the short run.
1: That makes sense. <laughs> <I hope so. laughs> and, and how much of this is, is sort of our, not to get too existential or too deep too quickly, but our inability to deal with the fact that we may not have total control of what's going on here, right? Like, we like to tell ourselves that we have agency and have a hand in what happens. And it seems like some of our, inability to cope with uncertainty is tethered to our inability to deal with the fact that like luck and risk and factors and forces like that play a not insignificant role in how our life unfolds.
0: In general, it's uncomfortable to feel like stuff just happens. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we want to, we definitely want to feel like masters of our own fate. But but I think that what's really interesting about this idea that like we want to feel like we have control is that it's asymmetrical. So there are times when we're really excited about uncertainty. And those times are when things don't go well. So I I find this, like, really fascinating that when things go well, like you you get the promotion or you get the job that you want or you get into the school that you were hoping for or you get an A on a test or, you know, it's a wide variety of things. You order well in a restaurant. Um, (laughs) No, for real, like even down to that basic thing. We really don't like the idea of uncertainty. We don't like the idea that our own decision-making could possibly not have specifically caused that as if it wasn't, like, determined by the decision that we made. And obviously the, our decision was so great that, like, now we've created this, like, deterministic version of the world where we just hurt ourselves toward this, like, clearly great outcome that we mastered, Right. So in that particular case, we're like, uncertainty, go away, hide in the shadows, we shall not see you. (laughs) But what I think is interesting is that when we have something bad happen, like we don't get the promotion, or we don't get in the school we want, or we don't get the job, or we order poorly in the restaurant, we're much more likely to allow for luck. You know, like, well, what could I do? Like, you know, that school has a 15% acceptance rate. What could I do? Well, yeah, that school has a 15% acceptance rate. So that should be symmetrical. If you got in, there had to be a bunch of luck involved. Cause we know that there's tons and tons of qualified candidates, just as if you didn't get in, there mm-hmm. was luck involved. We're really willing to see it when we don't get in, but we're really unwilling to see it when we do get in. So I think it's interesting. It's like, yes, we human beings don't like uncertainty except when it's super convenient.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: And then we're like all over that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Then we're like, yeah uncertainty. I like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Does this sort of question of ability to be uncertain, does it feel especially imperative now? Like in the age of social media and TV pundits, it feels to me that like certainty, it feels like self-righteousness and being certain is at an all-time high. You know, I talked to Robert Burton, who wrote the book on being certain, and he had the great quote about like, no one's ever won a Nobel Prize for ambivalence. So obviously, (laughs) like we have not really been comfortable with uncertainty for a long time, but I'm curious how imperative you feel like it is right now in this specific moment because of other societal and cultural forces to increase our tolerance for being uncertain.
0: I'm not sure that I'm comfortable saying like that sort of the level of people's certainty right now is worse. What I will say is this, I think that it's loud. Um, There's a lot of data now that shows that More information doesn't improve the quality of your beliefs. It improves your overconfidence in your beliefs. We know that there's diminishing returns for somebody in terms of how much they actually know about something, but there doesn't seem to be diminishing returns on confidence that my overconfidence seems to increase. So I become much more confident in my opinion. And as I pile more information on my ability to feel some uncertainty about it or to sort of recognize how well I know a topic or what I know about it or that maybe other people might have the same information and have come to a different conclusion or that kind of thing. I think people are definitely getting overconfident. I think it is easier to find your tribe. These are the people on this planet who believe exactly what I do. And we've all gone and gotten a lot of information, so we're very confident in the thing that we believe. And we're kind of echoing each other in a way that's sort of amplifying that. And we're really, really sure that other people— about this are wrong. It
1: feels like the parallel force to the sort of self-righteousness is sort of a culture of outrage and shame, which is like, if you're going to be so certain about this thing, I'm going to be that much harder on you saying, I told you so when you get it wrong.
0: Yeah. Here's part of the problem. Like I had a really great conversation once with Phil Tetlock, who wrote Super Forecasting, a mm-hmm. book I really highly recommend to anybody who's really interested in How do you think about how you forecast what might happen in the future? But he suggested something that I think was very insightful to me, which was you can think about beliefs as living in kind of two systems, that they have two purposes. So there's beliefs as an epistemological system. In other words, what do I know? What is true of the world? Where I'm sort of trying to create like an accurate model of the world. So, for example, like a time you would really want to recruit That particular system of belief is if you were, say, considering jumping out of the sixth story of a building, now you would like to recruit the epistemological system because that's going to help you understand what will happen to your body if you jump out of the building. Mm Okay, well, you know, hopefully you believe in gravity, so do you want to jump out the building? But there's this other system, there's this other purpose, this other function that beliefs are serving, which is a signaling function, which is like, when I express my beliefs to you, I'm telling you something about my identity, I'm telling you something about what tribe I belong to. Mm. And I think that we recruit that system a lot when we don't know it. So when I tell you a particular belief about mine, I've now, in, in a lot of sense, particularly when I'm signaling like political beliefs. I'm telling you something about what group I belong to. And so now I think that it no longer has that kind of like, what is the truth function? It has a what group am I part of function. And now this can become a clash because now when we're talking to each other, it's not so much about What do we believe about the world? It's who do I belong to? Mm. So when you say like, yeah, you know, if I express something, you're going to go just so much harder in the other direction. It's because we're trying to signal each other like, well, I'm different than you and Uh you don't belong to my group.
1: That's super interesting though, the idea that beliefs are – not just about the substance of the beliefs but are sort of expressive in a way that expresses your your group or your tribe in a way yeah. that doesn't really – it's not so much about the belief as it is a type of clothing to signal it's, this, yeah, is, this right. is who I am and where I belong.
0: I think that one of the really interesting demonstrations of this idea of like there there's this whole other function for beliefs is that if, if you think about – Some of the sort of, you know, the culture wars or the way that people divide up into political tribes. There are beliefs that are tied together that don't have any, there's no reason for them to be tied together, right? Mm -hmm. So, what your stance on climate change is, is tied to your stance on whether you're pro choice or pro life. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's tied to your stance on vaccines or it's tied to your stance on transgender issues or it's tied to your stance on gay marriage or. Whatever. And all of these things are, why would what you think about climate change, for example, hmm. be related in any way to what you feel about gay marriage, right? But it is, huh. right? They, they are tied together, because it's not so much about like, well, these things are actually things that I can come to conclusions on my own about, and maybe I could have a different conclusion. So if I took 10 issues... And I I thought about them individually, like maybe we would sort of think the same thing about six of them and maybe think different things about four of them or whatever. But there's sort of an expectation that these are all tied together. And in order to be part of the tribe, you must agree that you have the same opinion about all of them. And in fact, you know, I think that what can come from that is like, let's say that there's like five issues that have this tie together that don't, you know, it's like, I don't know, you could wear whatever shirt or whatever pants you want. Like, why do you have to wear the the exact same, right, like the exact same outfit as me that we could agree, in fact, on like four out of the five. But if I disagree on the one, I'm now ejected from the tribe. Because again, it's more of this other function, which is like we're signaling to people. We're showing you who we are as opposed to necessarily what is true. And I think because they all have to do with beliefs, they start to feel very true to us. It feels like the truth to us because we don't really understand that they're – I think we don't really think about a distinction between the two. And let me also say about this, like this is something that I'm very newly thinking about. Yeah. Like so uh, – you know, I could, could be completely wrong about this. I just want to say that because this is something that sort of I've been noodling about. And since you brought it up, you know, sometimes I noodle in public. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, no. So I'm, I'm well, doing
0: some public noodling I here
1: appreciate the, uh, on these ideas. And so
0: let me just say, like, I could be, I could be off. <laughs>
1: it's, it's really interesting to think that, you yeah, know, when you do subscribe to a certain political ideology, for instance, you are like, oh, yeah, I believe in these five things. Instead of looking right. at them individually and being like— what do I know about this? What should I learn about this? And how can I reevaluate to make sure it actually is consonant with my my values?
0: And I think that naturally, I mean, you know, there's a reason why these belief systems, like, become very strong. Because sort of back to the point of uncertainty doesn't feel good to us. It feels good when someone tells us what is true. You know, Jay Van Bavel, who's at NYU, you should actually have him on. You'd really like him. He wrote a really wonderful paper with his co-author Andrea Pereira. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, where he's talking about the different functions of a tribe. What does a tribe give you? And and so he said that there's five, but I'll give you just three of them. Um, <laughs> so there's belongingness, right? Like I belong to something. Yeah. There's distinctiveness, mm-hmm. which is like I'm distinct from people who are not in my tribe. That feels good to us as well. So that's that clash that you were talking mm-hmm. about, right? Like I need to be distinct from you. So mm-hmm. we need to clash on our beliefs in that way. He said, one of the really important things that Tribe gives you is knowledge, what's true and what's not, because we we don't know what's true and what's not, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, what, what's true and what's not? I don't know. Like, it's the earth round, I guess so, yep, right? I mean, I, I don't feel like I can prove it, but I, I've seen the pictures, and I believe the scientists, and that's sort of what I believe. And I, if, I guess if I went and researched it, I would certainly know that that was true. But there's all sorts of stuff that are, like, sort of unknowable, like, what happens after you die? hmm I don't know. know, So there's things that are sort of more or less knowable, but it's very hard for something to be really knowable. That's hard for us. It doesn't feel good to us. So one of the things that tribe does for you, and this is true whether it's like a religious tribe or a political tribe or whatever it might be, is it tells you – it hands that to you. Hmm. Here are the things that are true. Mm -hmm. Here is what we believe we hold these truths to be self-evident. Yeah. Here you go. And we clearly really crave that from back when, you know, we were in these small kinship groups to now when we're a member of a political party or, a you know, a member of a particular religion or whatever. Like we're looking for people to tell us what's what.
1: And that goes back nicely to the idea that being wrong or being uncertain is sort of an assault on your self-identity because right. you're almost being evicted from the tribe in a way that probably feels unbelievably painful and scary and
0: Right, and I, I think that the trick is, and this is, it's sort of like, I don't know, is I'm always trying to figure out, like, is this sort of like an oxymoron, is to figure out how to form a tribe where the epistemology is uncertainty. To say, we're all going to band together, and what we believe in is that we don't know. And, you know, and if you can somehow make that work for you, I think that you actually move yourself much closer to the truth. Like, we're the people who say, eh.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, I think this is ideally what the scientific community is. Ideally, the scientific community is a bunch of people who say, I don't know. I'm not sure. Let's try to figure it out. Uh, You know, I've got a hypothesis. I'm going to try to prove it's wrong, you know, which is something people don't necessarily know that scientists are actually trying to prove their hypotheses are wrong. That's actually the approach to Uh the subject. uh And then hopefully we're going to move toward getting more accurate models of the world by figuring out. You know, through the scientific method and through allowing these ideas out into the marketplace, you know, and then I'm going to put these ideas out and then you're going to look at that and say, well, that implies this. So this thing should be true. Let me go Mm -hmm, test that. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then maybe it turns out that this thing is not true. So now we have to modify that. And, you know, hopefully knowledge progresses. I think that, you know, in its ideal instantiation, that is the tribe of scientists. Now, obviously, sometimes that falls apart. So, yes, it's not perfect. But it's going to get you closer because you have a North Star that says, we are a community of people who are skeptics.
1: Mm-hmm. I do wonder, and this is not a fully formed thought, so if you'll indulge Well some I've of, just some been of my own literally
0: viewing <laughs> not fully formed thoughts. So I, there you go.
1: And this is something that Robert Burton has talked about before, but you know in the humanities you sort of have things don't hang together as cleanly. they're sort of morally complex in a way. And there's a lot more room for nuance. I wonder how much we're uncomfortable with sort of moral nuance, because we're like, oh, in the math science arena, I know something, and I can prove something. And I want to be able to do that when it comes to more morally nuanced things. I guess a good example is when we want to make a decision, something that is not quantifiable. So you're deciding between two different jobs to take. Because of our background in science, where we can say, this thing weighs four pounds, and this thing weighs two pounds. So therefore, four pounds is greater than two. We want to be able to say this job is worth two points on whatever scale I'm evaluating on. And this job's worth four points on whatever scale I'm evaluating it on. And so I take the four being greater than two. That's the job I choose. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So, hmm. okay. So now I'm going to noodle back. (laughs) Um, We need to separate out the things that we do have certainty about versus things that we don't. So there's a little bit of a difference between like two plus two is four and – a theory. Yes. Right? So a theory is taking a collection of facts, like 2 plus 2 is 4, and trying to figure out how do we model those facts in a way where we're taking these facts and then we can predict new things mm-hmm. that might be true that we don't necessarily know yet. But science is not mostly about 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's yeah. about sort of like, how are we modeling this data? What I would say is that for most of science, it's not like I know this thing yeah, to I be guess definitely that's, yeah. true. We have... I think the pop view of science is that, right? Yeah. So, but I think if you talk to scientists, they'd be like, no, it's uh, two plus two equals four. It's, I wish.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I shouldn't have equated math and science because math is a closed system in a way that science right, is not. Right, that science is not. Yeah, but yeah.
0: The, but that's, okay. I mean, but yeah. so I just I just kind of wanted to make that distinction. So I agree with you. And I think that the issue is that because for a lot of these things, like I'm thinking about job A or job B, because it feels like there's no way to know the probability people go kind of one of two ways. They either go, "Eh, I'll just, whatever, (laughs) right? So that's one way you can go. And the other way is to sort of create a false certainty around it. I've thought about it and I know for sure this is going to be the better job. And I feel like there's not a lot of room you know, in the middle. But the thing is that the, the middle is exactly where it is. So what I try to let people know is this, that If you tell me, "Eh," like, there's no way for me to know, I'm like, but you're a human being who lives on the planet, who's had experiences. You kind of know some things about like where you like to live and what types of jobs you've had in the past that you like. And Mm -hmm, there are similarities mm -hmm. here. So for example, if I were to say to you, how much of your net worth would you bet that you'll like this job? You probably wouldn't be like, you would tell me like not very much Mm -hmm. or a lot. And just that get you so much of the way there because what you figured out is like, well, I don't think it's like anywhere between I'm going to like it 0% of the time and 100% of the time. Yeah. Like I think it's I'm going to like it some low amount of the time. That's if you're not willing to bet very much. Or I'm going to like it some high amount of the time. That means you're willing to bet more. You could also think about it like, for example, like this difference. Like if the Red Sox play a Little League team and they win, how likely do you think it is that if they played again they would win? Scale of zero to 10.
1: Nine. Okay. I would have said 10, but because we're talking about uncertainty, it's probably probably a 10. I mean,
0: 9.9. A a meteor hits, they all get salmonella. Right. So nine point something. It's approaching 10. Okay. So now the Red Sox play the Yankees and they win. Now, on a scale of zero to 10, how likely do you think it is that they would win again on the next? Game they play.
1: Well, I'm a Yankees fan, so that was clearly an anomaly. So I to <laughs> okay, go well, with two or three. Do I
0: try to be honest, right? Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I would five.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So notice there that just by asking you that, you recognized, like, okay, you know, depending on what the situation is, there are differing amounts of certainty around this, and that you were okay when I was asking you the question that way. Well, we can ask those kinds of questions. About, like, which job do you want to take? mm -hmm. And it may be that you tell me a range, right? If I say to you, like, how likely is it do you think that you'd like this job, though? Really, you might say, I don't know. It's anywhere between a 3 and a Mm 7. Great, because that's not a 0 or a 10. Yeah. Like, it's that's so much of the work to get you there. And then once you decide, like, I'm going to make a commitment to trying to think this way, then what happens is that you start to say, well, okay, I think it's between a 3 and a 7. But boy, I'd really like it if I could get it, like, between a four and a six. So how could I do that? Like, what knowledge could I find out? Uh, What other things could I compare it to? What other opinions could I elicit? Recognizing that with things like that, you're never going to be able to be like, I'm 53% that I'll like that job. But man, if you can get, like, I'm somewhere, like, you know, 40 to 60%. Think about how much you've wiped away now in terms of how you're thinking about that problem. And if we could get comfortable with that idea, right, just, like, narrowing it down is good enough. We don't need to get to 100%. And if we don't know, we shouldn't default to 50-50. I think we'd be a lot better off. And, like, you said something a while ago about, like, pundits. Mm -hmm. I think that's a place where, like, I see so much trouble because I feel like they feel like they can't open their mouth unless they say it's 100%. Yes. Like, I just – I don't feel like they ever say, like, oh, it's like I believe this thing to be true. I think that it's going to work out this way Mm -hmm. somewhere around 60% of the time or somewhere between 40 and 60% of the time or whatever. No, it's always like, this is the way it is and this is going to happen and this is true. And then it's just, now you're just living in black and white. Exactly.
1: Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's, that's a flaw in entertainment, I guess, right? Because we want people who are confident and whatnot, but it seems that type of news and entertainment has infiltrated our life in a way that makes that. Increasingly, the model that we try to live up to, right? Like we yeah. see that model on TV and on social media and whatnot. And I feel like we try to we try to emulate that. Like everyone's just off firing off all these hot takes all the time, <laughs> yeah, because they feel like they need well, to be authoritative in that way.
0: You know, think. I I think that nuance is for long reads, and I'm not yeah, sure exactly. people are doing a lot of long reading. <laughs> but uh, you know, we can go again, go back in human history. Like we're in these kinship tribes. Do you really want the leader of the tribe saying, "Well, we need to really pick up our camp"? <laughs> And I've decided, as I think about the whether we're going to go, like, due north or northeast, that if we go northeast, there's a better chance that we're going to find, like, better resources. But I'm, like, 60% on that. So let's head that way. No. Yes. It's that idea of the tribe gives you the epistemology. It gives you what to believe mm-hmm. with certainty. And they're like, we're heading northeast. Let's do it. So – you know we're looking for those leaders all the time to tell us what is true, mm-hmm. to tell us what we are supposed to believe because it is something that we seek as human beings. So I don't really want to put the blame on like the providers of that. Yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like if people wanted something different, I assume that that would be there. And and again, we can see that in other forms. But it's an interaction. It's a two way street.
1: So it sounds like you're arguing for more meditative, nuanced podcasts like this one.
0: Exactly.
1: Great plug. <laughs> So if you guys are listening and you want to review on iTunes, feel free to take a moment to do that right now. (laughs) To make it a little more concrete, I want to, you know, you have this great, you call a bet an accountability mechanism, which I love. Sort of the idea that someone offers an opinion and you say you want to bet on that, it holds them accountable to their belief. And so if they're just spewing some nonsense because they want to spew some nonsense, all of a sudden they're like, well, actually, I don't want to bet on that. You know, you mentioned that just a second ago about how much would you bet on your net worth that you're going to like this new job or whatever. So I know one of the accountability mechanisms you have is asking one a bet. What are some other accountability mechanisms you sort of have in your life to keep yourself comfortable in this gray area?
0: Well, first of all, let me just say, like, I think that if you were to, like, run through the studio of most pundits and as they gave their opinions, go, do you, Sol, do you want to bet on that? I think you'd get a lot of, why?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, you had this great, not to, I want to get back to that question, but you, I just want to, like, you had such a great metaphor the first time we talked about polling, and about how Trump was polling at, I don't know the numbers, but let's say 35% or something yeah, I, I like that? Yeah, I think it was
0: like as it was closing out in those last weeks, yeah. it was 35%. And yeah. then
1: when he won, people were like, oh, my God, the polls were so wrong. And you made this analogy that if I gave you a gun and I had 100 <laughs> right. chambers and, and I was like, 35 of these chambers have bullets in them, would you put it to your head? And you're like, no, there's 35 times out right. of that 100 that's going <laughs> to end up dead. with a bullet in my head. Right. Again, just what we were talking about, because you want confidence and you want zero or 100 yeah, or right Yeah, people felt wrong. like,
0: oh, you know, it's 65-35. That means there's zero bullets in the yeah. chamber. It's like, no, there's 35 bullets in the chamber. Yeah. So to, on the belief side, what happens is that we don't vet our beliefs very well. So – I kind of think about beliefs as kind of in two categories. There's stuff we know and stuff we don't know. And our job in order to become better decision makers is twofold. One is to get more of the stuff we don't know into the stuff we know box. Okay, So that means I have to be open-minded to the things that you say, for example, because then I'm gonna, I'm going to hear some stuff I don't know, which is really good. But also we need to be really good internal auditors of the stuff we do know because a lot of the stuff in there is imperfect, it's mm-hmm, biased, mm-hmm. it's not quite calibrated exactly right in the stuff we know box. And so one of the things that saying like, do you want to bet to somebody does, is it actually kind of works on both of those issues. So we can think about the stuff we know and, and what particularly we know that we're bringing to bear on the decision. If I say, do you want to bet, you sort of go, well, wait a minute, it's the stuff I know right Right, you sort of think like, where did I hear that? What's my evidence for it? You know, why do I think this thing about trade, or why do I think this thing about nuclear power, or you know, whatever it might be? You'll you'll think like, what's my evidence for that? And so that that allows you to do this kind of like internal auditing of that stuff you know box. But then also it thinks when someone challenges you about, well, hold on, what do they know that I don't know? So that that's like trying to seek out that stuff I don't know. Right, Like, what's living in Clay's head that's not living in my head? And let me kind of try to figure out what that might be. That seems so, like
1: hyper-specific almost to your poker background of, like, what are the cards they have? That, right. Like, what is the information they have that I don't and have? And this is
0: – that's what we're trying to do all the time. Like, how do we do really good internal auditing of the stuff that's in our I know it box? And how are we getting more stuff that's in the I don't know it box yeah. into the I know it box? So huh. that's that's one of the reasons why it creates such a good accountability mechanism. Mm-hmm. The other accountability mechanism, because you said, well, like, what other ones besides yeah, yeah. betting? Um, so one of the things I'm a really big fan of is saying we're going to agree that when I'm eliciting feedback from you or when you're eliciting feedback from me, that there's certain things that we must adhere to in the discussion. So it could be a variety of things. One of the things could be that we're not allowed to ever say you're wrong. Hmm. So that's a good one. So now as I'm thinking about speaking, I know that if I say to you, you're wrong, that you're going to call me on that, Mm -hmm. right? So that then changes the way that I think about how I'm communicating to you, that I think about what you're saying. Because if I can't ever say you're wrong, what I then have to think about is like, well, here's a different perspective. So that like automatically means that I have to be open-minded. I'm not allowed to shut you down, things like that. Another way that you can think about like creating this kind of structure around conversation is let's say that we have a decision that we know that we're going to be making over and over and over again, right? So this can happen in like someone's job, for example. How would I figure out sort of in the past over a bunch of these types of decisions, how I could decide whether it was a good decision or a bad decision, or let's not put it in black and white, just sort of generally what the quality of the decision was, not to get you know geeky on poker, but it's obviously an example that I know pretty well. If you're coming to me asking me about a hand, there's things that I need to know. I need to know what your position was in the betting. Were you early in the position, middle position, late position? I need to know something about your stack size relative to other people's, particularly other people in the hand. I need to know things about your opponent that you've noticed, like, what are their kind of frequencies for like basically we would say are they splashy, meaning do they play a lot of hands or are they tight? Do they play very few hands? This really matters. It's very hard for me to understand what your choices were against that person unless you provide me with that information. And then also like were they on the aggressive side or on the passive side that tells me something about what the meaning of if they raise versus not. For example, so anyway, this is a very incomplete list, but like I can create <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can yeah, create yeah. this kind of list. So now if you come to me and you say, hey, I want to ask you about this poker hand I played, I've now held you accountable because we figured out these are all the things that you have to tell me. in in this narrative, I need to know this stuff. Mm -hmm. And you can't leave it out. Now, what's really great about that is, first of all, it disciplines the conversation in a way that makes it much less likely that you do PR for yourself. And I don't mean that in a malicious or an intentional way. We want to have a positive self narrative. If I'm eliciting feedback from you without even knowing it, I'm going to sort of paint my decisions in the kind of the best light, or I'm going to tell the story in a way that makes the outcome make sense because I don't like it when outcomes don't make sense. Um, There's a variety of things that I might do where I'm sort of unknowingly doing this PR for myself. And part of the way that we do PR for ourselves is that we highlight certain things about the narrative and we sort of, you know, Hide or Mm -hmm, reduce mm -hmm. the appearance. We shrink down other parts of the narrative. And and again, this is, it's not generally malicious. We're not trying to be salesmen, but we just, this is naturally kind of what we do. So if we've created this list, like you're not allowed to tell me about a poker hand unless you have told me all of these things, it just reduces your ability to lift up certain details and hide other ones. Um, and it means that the feedback that you're g- going to get from me, the feedback you're going to get from me is going to be such higher quality because we've created this really wonderful sort of accountability to the structure. But then it does a second thing. So that's like in the moment when we're talking to yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But think what it does when you're actually playing a hand uh-huh. is that we've all – we've agreed that these are very important things to think about when you're playing a hand of poker because we've now made this list and you know that if you come and ask me later, I'm going to ask you these mm-hmm. things. You're now thinking about those things while you're playing, which makes your decisions in the moment better because you're thinking about the things that actually matter.
1: Huh. That's so interesting. So,
0: this I think is one of the most wonderful accountability mechanisms. So, you can use this for anything. Like, how do I think about whether a date went well? You can sort of go through and you can say, sort of in the history of all my dates, like, what are the things that were true of the people that I chose? that seemed to be sort of predictive of whether it was going to go well or not. What are the things that allowed me to see, like, maybe it went better than I thought or maybe it went worse than I thought because I just thought, like, well, the person was attractive, but I missed, like, some red flags or uh, they were really charismatic. And so, you know, whatever. And you can sort of think through what are the things in general that really need to be true of the person that I'm on the date with? What really is a signal of a good date or a bad date? I could create that with you. I'm like, I want help with my dating. Like, let's create this list. And now when I'm thinking about, when I'm sort of relaying to you, like, oh, I want to know, like, do you think this date went well or poorly? We can sort of go through this list. My list will be different than yours because the things I value or the things that I want in a date or whatever, I might value things differently than yours. But we've got that list and we've agreed that we have to talk about that. And now we can use that actually for to help me pick people to go out on dates with in the future. And then also... When I'm on a date, I might be less likely to just be like, I was, I'm in a really bad mood, Yeah. right? So if I know you're going to ask me later, there's nothing that seems that bad mm-hmm. about the date. Like what was going on? Were you in a bad mood? That's going to be on the question. Yes, I had a horrible day at work. So now when I'm actually on the date, I'm going to remember that. And maybe my bad day at work is not going to influence the way that I'm processing mm-hmm. that date in the moment in the same way. You can use this across I love that. Yeah. the board. And it, it's a really beautiful accountability mechanism.
1: Yeah, it just sort of makes you hyper aware in a way that like it orients you towards presence in a way right. that I kind of really like. This is maybe not totally coherent comparison, but, you Again, know, the in- theme
0: of the day is <laughs> saying a lot of stuff that may not be coherent, <laughs> but take what you will.
1: But like people who do, you know, a gratitude journal say that it makes them more gracious over time because they start to notice things during the day that they didn't notice otherwise until they started writing it down because right. they're
0: accountable exactly. to having yeah. things to write down. Yeah. yeah, so it's exactly the same thing. You choose what you're going to be accountable to. You can choose the things that you're going to notice or the mm-hmm. things that you don't notice. You you have some say over the way that you're processing your experience. And if you have a value say around being less biased, for example, being more accepting of uncertainty, that kind of thing, we now agree to that and we figure out what is it? How are we communicating with each other in a way so if we have a value around uncertainty, well, one of the things that goes out the window is saying you're wrong. So how can I say that? I also can't say you're right, right? That That's actually a big problem of mine is I say you're right to people a lot, which huh. is, I got to work on that.
1: I like that, though. It's sort um, of like – because the idea here in some ways that I wanted to have you on was like how can we be better at being wrong? But it's almost like getting rid of that binary altogether that right. you're not – Right or wrong, you're somewhere on the scale between those you're two You're somewhere in
0: between. Yeah. Which I, And I think, you know, I just feel like it's so freeing to approach the world that way. If you can take the leap, you know, it's, yeah. it's really freeing to approach the world that way. And it's not that you become indecisive or that you don't believe anything. It's actually, I think, quite the opposite. That because you're not so afraid of being wrong, because you're not thinking, I need to know for sure before I do something, you're so much freer to just do stuff and to try it and to see how it works out and and to sort of get yourself to a point where, you know, I'm, I'm sure enough that this is the right thing to do. And to recognize going into it that it may not work out 100% of the time. I might find out later as I gather more information and I calibrate my beliefs that actually if I'd known what I knew now, you know, I would have done something different. But that's okay because that's That's kind of the point. And I'm going to be a faster learner if I'm not so afraid of being wrong. If that isn't my goal is to just not be wrong. I'm actually going to learn more quickly because I'm going to be less likely to be swatting away information and kind of like trying to fend it off in defense of my own self-narrative. Yeah.
1: It's almost like changing the stakes of the game so that it's not how can I prove that I'm right, but sort of almost rewarding yourself when you find out information that maybe disproves what you believe. That's tough to do, but if you could rewire yourself to get a hit of dopamine every time you learned a counterexample to something you thought, I mean, you'd be, you'd constantly be updating sort of your tapestry of beliefs, but in a way that seems like it would lead to a lot more self-growth than constantly trying to confirm what you believe. Yeah, well,
0: imagine if like we made a commitment to each other that like, whenever we find out something that changes our mind, that we go to the other person and the sentence you have to say is, I'm so excited. I changed mm. my mind. Mm. Like, if that's all that you did, like, you just changed the way that you said about that, not like, oh, I think I was wrong. It's, I'm so excited I changed my mind. It, it changes the way that you look at the world. And the thing is, like, you know, you heard me say, like, I'm, I say to people, you're right all the time. Like, it's something that I'm not great at. And I think that it's, it's really important for people to understand, like, you're born with the mind that you have. Like, this is thousands of years of evolution that have selected for the way that you process information. There's a reason why belonging to a tribe is like the thing that everybody wants to do. Like you got to find your tribe, right? Because this is the way that we're built. So just, you know, understand like through this, what I hope is like this real act of sort of kindness to yourself that you're going to screw this up and just like me, you're going to find yourself saying you're wrong or that person's dumb or what they believe is just completely ridiculous or I can't believe someone would believe that or you're right, right? You're gonna do that a lot, but maybe less than you would otherwise. And that that's amazing. That's amazing if you can just get a little bit better at it. Mm -hmm. It's amazing.
1: I imagine that would create a much more compassionate world if we could all (laughs) be that. Can you imagine? You may have just answered this, but I was gonna ask how that thinking influences your parenting. Because you have Mm. four kids, right? So I'm curious how these sort of great thoughts and accountability mechanisms you have come to play. Or manifest in the way you raise your children?
0: I think in some good ways and some bad ways. So (laughs) let me start off with the good ways. I'll I'll give one example. I think that because I do do kind of think this way and I think about so much like what's the evolution of an idea or the evolution of your beliefs or, you know, what does it mean to change your mind and that kind of thing. I think there's a couple of things that come out of that that I hope are good. Who knows? (laughs) You'll have to ask them when they're you know, 40 and at their therapist's office. I think number one is that I do tend to really think about things in the scope of time in maybe a way that's a little bit different than people naturally do. So I've been in situations where just like in the moment, I mean, it's like I have four kids who are seven years apart. It's like there was stuff happening where something's happening and I say, this is going to be so great 20 years from now at Thanksgiving. So I can kind of see like the difference between – how do I feel about it in the second? And how am I going to feel about this, like, over the scope of time? Like, what's the value of this going to be for me? So, you know, there are these moments where just, like, you know, everything seems to be going wrong, you know? Like, you're getting thrown up on and your child's screaming in the middle of the grocery store or whatever. And I just think, like, this is going to be such a great story. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love this. You know, and I think that is because I do think about sort of like how are you traveling through time all the time and how are you sort of like creating this interplay between the different versions of yourself and recognizing that whatever's happening to you in this moment is like a split second. But you can get like 20 years Mm -hmm, out of that split mm -hmm. second.
1: The time one especially sets me up perfectly for how we always end the show. And it's a question that feels especially apt today given what we've discussed. We always end it with a favorite fuck-up. So it (sighs) is – A failure, a favorite failure of yours?
0: I'd say the biggest thing is this, that when I was at the end of graduate school, with the full intention of becoming a professor, by the way, like fully intended to do that, I got sick. I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And I think as can happen when someone's going through an illness, particularly one that's obviously you don't end up in the hospital for two weeks with a not so bad illness. This was a stomach issue where I was literally incapable of keeping food down. It was was bad. I don't know. I feel like I sort of felt this need to like retreat from the world. Like I didn't physically feel good, and I think that made me sort of like psychologically and like like I didn't. I just didn't feel good. And I, you know, as I was taking this time to recover, that's when I started playing poker, and I loved the game. I really, really loved the problem, but I also loved. So at that time, poker was not on television. Mm-hmm. This was very anonymous. You know, I was in the, this little back room poker room, and like billings montana and i think it was in a lot of ways sort of a way to hide for me which i don't think was my best decision making i mean choosing to do something because i'm trying to hide from the world not the best and at the time you know it's like it just that's what i did and i said that i was going to go back to graduate school and you know go off and become a professor and i that never happened I don't even know that I could even say that I was, like, making a decision in the sense of, like, thinking about it. It was, like, I think I was just running away. But obviously, like, it worked out great. So (laughs) that would probably be it. I mean, there's a billion poker hands that I've screwed up and a billion decisions that I've made that, in retrospect, were mistakes, you know. I endorsed a company that depended on online security. Like, I don't – if I knew now what I knew then about how easy it is to breach those things, you know, I probably would have made different decisions. You know, I I don't want to say that starting a company was a mistake, so I wouldn't put that in that category. Mm But, you know, I mean – I've lived a life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, there's there's so many
1: choices. <laughs> well, based on where you are now, I I would imagine you are a an argument for making billions of mistakes. Then.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's like there was a lot of really lucky things that like intervened in my life. Like, I mean, I happen to be good at poker, which is the thing that I hmm. ran to. I happen to have studied something. In graduate school, that actually merged really well with poker. I mean, maybe that wasn't accidental, but like I say, like I wasn't really necessarily making a conscious choice. Like, I'm going to go do this other decision-making yeah. problem. I think that the thing that has worked out well for me is that when an opportunity sits in front of me that I think is like kind of interesting, I am willing to try and experiment. I'm a big experimenter in my life. So like when I had the opportunity to do my first talk, I was like, ooh, that's kind of fun. I, I kind of like that. And I said yes to it when I could have said no to it and then when I got other opportunities I said yes to those and then I started to sort of develop from there but it was all sort of through experimentation and being willing to well I'll see how this fits on me and I do think that that served me well
1: thank you so much for coming on the podcast
0: well thank you for having me that went very philosophical at the end
1: Uh, yeah and thank you for giving other people the courage to noodle in public (laughs) well there's a lot of noodling so
0: (laughs) again that could all be garbage but take it for what you will
1: that's the show. Thank you to Annie Duke for being gracious enough to put up with my interview questions for a second time. First interviews on gq.com. Go check it out. Also pick up her book Out in Paperback Now, Thinking and Bets by Annie Duke. Thank you to Justin Molly, our producer. Thank you guys for listening. If you are liking the podcast, or even if you're not liking the podcast, definitely subscribe and review it. Don't review it if you don't like it. I'll see you guys next week.